This is the Thursday Night Podcast, your source for news, analysis, and all things Georgia State sports. Because every day is Thursday. Hello and welcome to episode 155 of the Thursday Night Podcast. My name is Jordan and I'm joined today by Brady and David. On tap this week, a disappointing home loss for the football team against ULM that sets up a tough two-game road trip with no margin for error. Also on the docket, the men's basketball team splits a two-game homestand with Georgia Tech and Mercer and gets ready to host the Capital Classic this weekend and play three games in three days. But first, let's go ahead and talk about this football game. It was a 31-28 loss to ULM. The Panthers led 14-3 and looked to control until a blocked punt returned for a touchdown by ULM's Quadrick gave the Warhawks life in the game. Georgia State took a narrow 21-20 lead into halftime and extended that to an 8-point lead in the third quarter, but ULM scored the final 11 points, taking their first lead on a Drake pick six in the fourth quarter and stunned the Panthers to condemn them to a loss that leaves them 4-6 in 2022. The Panthers finished their home slate 2-4 this year, matching their 2018 home record, which was the last time they finished under 500 at Center Park or Georgia State Stadium, as it was known then. So, gentlemen, thoughts on this ULM game? Yeah, it wasn't good. Uh, it was not good at all. It was kind of a downer going into the nightcap of the Georgia Tech game because that was the one you felt was dicey. And as that one played out, we'll get to basketball later. That was down to the wire and wasn't a given you're going to win. But it felt like your your worst case scenario in most situations is going to be a 1-1 split that day. However the game looks against ULM, you figure you're good enough to get over the line in that one. And it's set up for what was in the end an 0-2 day, but very different 0-2s. Or, you know, very different losses in football and basketball because we kind of allowed for the possibility they were going to lose this game on the last pod, but it was basically one of those things where it's like, if you lose this game, you'll have done something wrong. Like, we, there's no foreseeable this is how you're going to lose this game and that's basically what it was because you look at it georgia state outgained ulm 535 to 300 and kind of for especially in the first half did a lot of what they wanted to do offensively it was just in key moments they did not execute and ulm took advantage of mistakes and never gave up you know at 14-3 it really felt like at that point if that punt gets off, and this is something Coach Elliott said after the game, you trust the defense probably gets another stop there. They'd been getting at least stopping ULM short of the end zone. So, okay, whatever, they drive down, get a field goal. The offense had only been stopped at that point on the drive where they forced a punt right there. You felt pretty good if it keeps rolling the way it is. The offense can keep scoring. Um, but that punt block kind of reset everything kind of like what we saw in the Charlotte game with that strip sack return for a touchdown. And ULM never went away. Uh, Georgia State could never put them away. And then kind of a back-breaking pick six in a mad scramble of a two-minute drill that ended up not panning out. And honestly, I know that there's a little bit of controversy there at the end. Well, I'm sure we'll touch on that play. But you put yourself in a position where you're having to drive the length of the field to maybe get a field goal to tie the game or take the lead in a game that you should have had well in hand at that point. And it just has been another episode in the saga of just this team being really hard to pin down as what they are. But unfortunately, just not playing clean enough football cost them another game. Yeah, and it sucks. It sucks a lot. And I I'm, I want to be very candid about that because this isn't a game that they should have lost. And now 
You're right. Last week we did highlight, you know, okay, here are some ways that ULM can win this game. They've got to win three straight, go to get to bowl eligibility. That's very well possible for them. It's still an uphill battle. They got to go face Troy, but um, they hung around, you know, credit to them. They hung around and in the first quarter and a little bit through the second quarter, I mean, Darren looked really good passing the ball. This was a really good game for Darren passing. Um, the running game was decent. It, it did, They didn't eclipse 200 yards. So yeah, I know that's our number that they were always talking about. But, you know, Darren looked really comfortable, both in the pocket, kind of moving around. You know, this was his season high in passing. And it just it looked like a game where Georgia State was just very comfortable throwing the ball. And I don't know. It just it just ended up not being enough, which is crazy because, I mean, there are whole games where Darren hasn't gotten to 222 yards. He had that in the first half. You know, they had three scores. And like you said, ULM really just could not stop them on offense. And then in the second half, like the passing was, it was, you know, good. They added another 127 yards, but they just could not figure out a way to get in the end zone. They couldn't figure out a way to get the drives in the second half turn that into points and you know two mistakes in the game ultimately was what cost them and like it just it sucks because this we know this is a good we know that there's talent on this team i can't say that it's a good team at this point i feel like but i can say that this is a talented team and you know two plays that have varying levels of blame i guess was ultimately what ended up sunk them yeah and i mean the other part of this the other storyline Shortly coming into the game, it was like, oh, by the way, there's these guys that are missing the game. Like on the broadcast, they confirmed that Jemias Williams out for the year um, with a knee injury that he picked up. And unfortunate, you also did not have Luis Cristobal left guard or Travis Glover right tackle. And then on defense, you were pretty sure Bryce Cruz Brown wasn't going to be back at cornerback, and that was confirmed. And then John Trey Hunter also missed. All of which to say, the offensive line didn't play as well. It was like this was almost like a com- combination of the Charlotte loss, like I talked about with that strip sack and the punt block play kind of resetting and letting the team that, quote, you should take care of, unquote, stay in the game. And it was also like the coastal loss because that's the only other game this year, really, where it's felt like the offensive lines never really got into gear. And even this one, they got on it 186 on the ground, but it was the second lowest yards per carry total. Um, behind, just ahead of that Coastal game. And there were nine tackles for losses, four of which were sacks. Uh, Darren, I think part of the problem with getting settled in the passing game in the second half is that pass rush started teeing off. And especially on that last drive when they were down three trying to drive, I mean, that fumble play that Darren got backed up to near midfield when it was, they were at that point kind of in situation where they were at least going to get a chance at a good field goal. Um, But it was kind of, more interior pressure that sent him backwards on that play. And he got sacked earlier on that drive. Uh, all sorts of trouble with that. And with the run game, never really getting off like we've seen it, especially after that, how they played against Southern Miss. And so certainly there's a part of that is just, you had guys thrown in that hadn't been playing those, you know, offensive line really is that chemistry thing. And you moved Mason Cook and then Montavious Cunningham in the second half to left tackle and then slid Bryson Broadway over. And on the media call this week, Coach Ellie talked about how Broadway hadn't really played guard, but they just, I think, wanted to have the best five in their view out there. 
so there is a part of that, that like undeniably is a factor. But the other part of it is that this is not a particularly good ULM run defense coming into the game. And they controlled everything. And the way that this team is designed and the way that it's so focused on the run, I don't think you know, two linemen injuries can be the difference between a not very good offensive run game and what we've seen. Like it, I understand that there's an injury factor to this and that reps are a thing. But I think when you're looking at this loss, the biggest thing you can say with the offense is they couldn't get the run game going like they wanted to. And I don't know that it's enough to say, oh, you had these injuries, because I think you've been building up a pretty decent depth at offensive line. And sure, guys haven't gotten on the field, but you still have to find a way to put out five that are going to be able to make those blocks. And it just weren't moving guys around like we've seen them do over the last couple of weeks. And I think that more than anything led to the struggles because they ended up with 349 passing yards, but I don't think it's an offense that like in the middle of the game, you can just snap your fingers and say, okay, we're just passing because about half of the pass plays are either rollouts or play actions or play action rollouts where there's a lot predicated on the run game and the defense believing there's going to be a run factor. And it's not like you can just do a drop back thing because I don't think the passing is so deep and developed that you can just flip it like that. And I think that was an issue. And I think, you know, 349 passing yards, great home run result as far as that goes. But I think not getting over 200 or whatever number you want to put it at in the run game affected them because they weren't able to do what they've normally done in that phase of the game. Yeah, and I mean it's it's the two point seven yards per carry in the second half. Like that that's what did it. If they kept their four point three in the first half going, yeah, I mean, we're probably not talking about a three point loss at this point. And you know, I I struggle with this because I think the the final two drives they definitely went more run heavy than I expected them to on them. Um, but I mean, you're right. Like this isn't an offense. that's just going to sit there and, you know, five step drop and seven step drop or whatever, and just be like, all right, let's just, you know, pass all over guys. And it's unfortunate because it was a good passing day. You know, I feel like we have to give Jamari thrash his flowers. He's turned into a premier receiving option. And I mean, another really good game, nine catches, 164 yards. And what I liked about this is, you know, only 30 of the yards were yards after the catch. Like it was just a game where the deep ball was working over the top. You know, Thrash is a guy who, you know, he definitely can make guys miss and is shifty, you know, in the open field. But I think he still shows a lot of value when he is going over the top and is, you know, stretching the field and, you know, making catches. And I mean, he was. He was Darren's security blanket. I think on one of the uh, fourth downs that they didn't pick up, Darren kind of had a bad low throw. He was throwing to the other hash. Um, so, it, you know, it wasn't a great a great drive for Jamari, but, but, you know, obviously it wasn't his fault. But, I mean, Darren leaned on him on those fourth downs. He leaned on him on those third downs and deeps. And, you know, it's it's just kind of been more of the same for Jamari. He's just been a very consistent, reliable, deep threat for Georgia State this year. Yeah, and I wanted to pick up on something you were mentioning there about those last couple of drives. And I think on the drive right after Yellum took the 31-28 lead, 
the tendency worked because they had a third and 12 and they ran it. And I think they caught ULM out of, you know, they didn't were inspecting that. And Marcus ended up picking up 10, set up a very manageable fourth and two. On that play, Darren tried to scramble for it. It looked like it might have even just been designed scramble the entire way. Looking at it, just it seemed like partially Darren got forced from the pocket. But I, I felt like at least possibly the read was a run there all along. But the defender chased him down and got him behind the line. And uh, you know, execution on that play didn't work out. But I actually thought in that instance... You got 10 yards on third and long, and it looked like it was going to be a, a miserable situation. Um, I do think they got caught out by their own choices on the final drive because they ran on the first play, and I think it was they were hoping for the same situation where ULM's playing the pass and they can pick up some cheap yards. Uh, but blocks got blown up, and it was a loss of two. And so right away on the first drive, with a running clock because you have no timeouts, it's second and 12, and they overcame that. Um, but then Darren scrambled, I think, another 10-yard run on uh, that second down. Third and two, I think the thinking was, okay, we're just going to pick up this first down, get the clock to stop, get a new set of downs. But Marcus only got one. And so that was your first fourth down, and they got it. But that sequence cost them about 30 to 50 seconds, depending on how you want to uh, measure it. And in a game where you were down to your final five seconds on that fourth down play, like time ended up being more of a factor than it needed to. And I understand the thought process behind it. And especially like that third and two, like you really just want to get that first down. But when the clock became the extra enemy down the stretch and it is a magnified thing after the game. Yeah. And I mean, it like it sucks. We're sitting here talking about the clock. We're sitting here talking about play calling of the end. You know, we're talking about the blocked punt and the, the pick six. I mean, I'm sorry. Like, I, I'm just going to be 100% honest. That interception was on Aubrey Payne. Like, yes. It, it, I think it was all around. I, yeah. I will say Darren telegraphed it a lot. And that, it was, a, I, the throw was a little bit like, like another one, like you were saying, a little bit further down the hashes. And so it was a, a slow, a, a throw that he telegraphed. Maybe the route wasn't super and it was a long enough throw that DB uh, had tons of time to jump it. Yeah, and uh, that's exactly what I was going to say. Yes, Darren telegraphed the hell out of that pass. Like, everybody and their mother knew it was going to Aubrey. I, I don't know what it is about Georgia State's receiving core um, comeback routes. Just I think that's like the third or fourth pick that Darren has thrown this year on a comebacker. And it's like, it's crazy It's receivers. They just do not make that turn at the top sharp enough to give Darren a chance to let the ball get there. And it, 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 it could be a timing thing. You know, those types of routes are super predicated on the timing between the offensive line, the coordinator and the receiver all matching up, you know, but uh, it just, as soon as that ball left Darren's hands, you could see it was going to get picked off. And I mean, ULM just had numbers. And I mean, that's 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 an unfortunate throw. I mean, Darren was 25 of 40. Like, yes, he missed, you know, 14 other passes, but still had a good day. Still had a good day. And we're not talking about the 349. We're not talking about Marcus Carroll crossing the century mark again. We're talking about blocked punts and you know, interception coverage and time. 
Yeah, I mean, that's just kind of the day it was, is that those mistakes piled up. And the end of the game, after all that I just laid out, they ended up getting two cradle plays that kind of opened up, got some space, got them into ULM territory. And then that faded fumble by Darren that set them back. And then the final play of Georgia State's offensive day, that fourth down in 14, I think it was. And the spot looked pretty bad. Like it did. And I don't know exactly how they completely stood this call because I feel like at the very least, it was going to be a better spot. Maybe it was still a yard short when they measured it, but they missed it by like two yards. But the thing of it is at that point, it was at the 35 if it's a, given as a first down. There's five seconds and it would stop for the timeout, you know, because of the first down when play resumed. And so I think that Georgia State would have probably had a chance if they were up at the line ready to go to spike it and get a field goal off. But at that point, you're talking about a 52-yard field goal to tie it to send it to overtime in a game that you were up by 11 early on and in control of. And, you know, it's there was a chance and maybe that play playing out how it did and the call being called as it was unfair wrong call maybe to Georgia state, but you're, you can't really care about that. Like there was enough in your control before that point that you didn't do and lost the game as a result of it. And I almost think it's a good thing that that's the case because having some kind of cudgel like that to be like, Oh, got screwed by the refs. Um, it can be, a negative, it can just, like, because it can let you forget about other things that went on in the game. And I think in this case, everyone's pretty plain that like, yeah, they might have missed that call. But I, I don't think anyone would look at that game and really take that away as like the moment of like, oh, if that didn't happen, Georgia State was like, darn you refs. And, I, you know, that's a good at the end of the day, I think I think that's a good thing because, you know, if you're looking to get past it and obviously two games on the road to end the year against good teams, especially good defenses and especially good run defenses. It's really easy at four and six to look at just all the negative. And I, we don't know what team's going to show up in the next two days. So uh, these next two games. So I can't really talk anyone out of it, but I think for the team's perspective, I think they know that they only have themselves to blame and that they've got stuff that, you know, they can work on. And it's not a thing where it's like this call at the end of the game is going to be the thing that people let on to fans or the team or the coaches, whoever. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I think the, with the way that the camera was set up, it looked like it was set up um, and the yard lines were slanted. So I'm still not sure how they didn't see that. He, like he very clearly got the, the down marker. Like, I mean, I will be honest. It looks good live. If you just sit there and think about where the positioning was, it doesn't make sense that the ball would have been placed where it was. Like they got it wrong. We can say that. But also, what does it matter? Like, <laughs> you know, like like you said, the the game situation, I mean, best, best, best case scenario, right? They get the first down, the clock stopped, they spike it, and a second comes off. You get another like five yard out route or whatever. Like, no, you got to keep the had. field goal at that point. And, and that's the thing. The like, clock's going to start on the whistle. And so you're probably yeah. going to have three or two seconds left on the clock if you get a spike off. And that's if you don't have any kind of weird procedural stuff because that would end the game. 
Exactly. Like the, they still have to kick a long field goal. And I mean, I think Darren is really good when he's got guys in stride, but I just don't think that you're going to try for the Hail Mary there. So you're just, I mean, Michael Hayes career long, he hit this year. It was like a 47 yard field goal. I believe no commentary on Michael Hayes to say that if you're banking on a college kicker to make a 52 yarder, then you're banking on a very low percentage. Like that isn't the thing about Michael. He's done a good job as a kicker this year and a punter, and especially on the punting side, I think he's been able to handle it. Um, protection stuff isn't really in his control <laughs> as far as the punts go, but that's not a statistical probability. It's more likely that you're going to miss that, especially because it was kind of a weird day weather-wise. Um, yeah, so without even making it about a Michael Hayes thing, just like asking anyone to make a 52-yarder, it just wasn't, even if you have the call go your way there, and even that would just send it to overtime. When when you're at second and two at, like, what, the 37-yard line, that's a situation where you're setting up a more makeable field goal or with, like, a minute on the clock still, a little under a minute, you could still go get a touchdown. But because of that fumble that set you back, mental mistakes you yourself made, you were in that situation where it's going to be kind of a hope and a prayer and... You didn't even get the hope part with the down and distance on the fourth down. And I mean, we should just talk about fumbling in general because it was a problem on Saturday. It was a big problem on Saturday. And it's one of those things where they put the ball on the, they they played with fire. You know, they put the ball on the ground four times and they only lost one of them officially. And like, yes, it's obviously good that you, receive your fumbles but like you know we've sung Talik Williams praises for the last couple of weeks like the punting looks so much better the the punt returning looks so much better he fumbled twice he lost one of them Darren fumbled like you just mentioned Marcus fumbled and it's yes Darren and Marcus got their fumbles cool Talik got the other fumble like it, it didn't cost Georgia State the football but you don't want to play with the chance that you can cough up the football because Georgia it did State the other did, time. Yeah, it did. And like Georgia state did not, Georgia state did not play a clean game outside of that. Like we, Darren still had the interception. You know what I mean? So it's, you can't just bank on you getting the football. If you put it on the ground, because statistically speaking, that's not how fumbles work. The more you put the ball on the ground, the more likely you are to lose the football. So that's definitely something yeah. that needs to be cleaned up now. Like even even if Georgia State loses their next two games and ends the season four and eight, this is something that you can improve on now. Yeah, and the Talik thing's especially important just because both of the way these fumbles happened was he was in space trying to make a guy miss, and that's where he lost the football in both times. And that's basically the situation he's going to get put in as with what his talents are. And so if he's having ball security issues in those situations that's just a longer term problem because he's going to keep being in those situations because that is where his strengths as a receiver are and he's done a good job and that's just the one thing you can point to and i guess you can take that if it's something you can drill and you can get coached up going into the next couple of years because you see the talent pop you see the speed on the field pop but you know as we saw with destin Coates, if a guy is going to keep fumbling Coach Elliott's not going to keep giving him those opportunities because at a certain point it becomes a liability. And it's like, I think the way that Coach Elliott put it when he talked about the Destin situation last year is basically like, I know 
other guy, you know, it's about the issue and it's the easiest way to make sure that you don't fumble is you don't touch the ball. And I don't want to get to that situation because I think he's been a really nice piece, especially with Robert Lewis being out. He's kind of filled in in that role. And both of those plays where he fumbled were good plays down the field that he was open. And you're going to want to keep having a guy in those situations to make those plays. But it's just tough when that's where the fumbles are cropping up because it's what he's going to have to be at. You know, it's where he's going to find himself in a lot of plays when he's getting the football. And the other thing we haven't talked about really is the entire defensive side of the ball. And that's maybe the worst part of this game is that you wasted a third straight, really good defensive game. I mean, they won the game 28, 17. It's just special teams in the offense had a different say in the matter. Um, And the one thing you could say about the defense in this game to middle of the fourth quarter was they were Ben not breaking, but they weren't making those impact plays. And then Antavius Lane on the deflection gets the interception. And that was the situation where after everything that had happened, you get that interception, you're up 28, 23. If you go down and get a touchdown there, game's pretty much on lock at that point. Even if you get a field goal, you make it an eight point game. Again, they have to score, get a two point conversion. But of course, what ended up happening as a, just a microcosm of the day is right after that's when Darren threw the pick six, ULM took the lead Never gave it back, and Georgia State's left scratching their heads at the game that could have been. And yeah, I mean, I don't even think there's a lot to say about the defense. They played good, you know. I think you would have loved more sacks, two sacks. I mean, they just had a couple of games with six, seven. So yeah, I I can be greedy at this point. I know that there's the talent to get those sacks. You know, the offensive line was excuse me, the defensive line wasn't as impactful late, but like I'm, I'm picking nits at this point. They gave up 17 points. They put the team in the position to win the game. And even if they had given up 40 points, for example, that's not necessarily putting yourself in the best position to win, but the defense is not the reason why ULM won this game. You can say that pretty confidently. All right, so let's go ahead and move on to this week's contest, which is JMU, Saturday at 2 p.m. on ESPN+. The Panthers have no time to feel sorry for themselves because they hit the road for the first of two away games to wrap up the season, heading to Harrisonburg to face the 6-3 and three James Madison Dukes. JMU is led by head coach Kurt Signetti. He is 39-8 in his time at the school and 106-34 overall with previous stops at IUP and Elon. The Panthers trail the all-time series with James Madison 1-0 with the teams previously playing just the one time in 2012. It was a 28-21 Dukes victory at Bridgeforth Stadium. A loss would consign Georgia State to a losing record in 2022 and end their bull streak at three, while a win would keep those faint hopes alive heading into the regular season finale at Marshall next Saturday. So gentlemen, thoughts on the Dukes? I feel like we had them wrong this year. Um, Like, I don't know about you, Brady, but I didn't see this. And I know that they've kind of tapered off a little bit. Their starting quarterback, um, Todd Santiago, um, I believe that's correct. Um, He's been in and out a little bit. He's been hurt, Um, but he's been really good. Like, he has been the cog if you will in that offense and then i mean the defense is it's pretty legit so um yeah i don't know i i just 
the losses are i mean they lost to louisville last week so that's fine but georgia southern and then marshall a little weird but yeah i mean they like i said he their quarterback's been out and he, i don't know i just i did not see them joining the Sun Belt and then just kind of being as good as they've been this year. Well, my take was basically we play them in November. And so I'm not even really ascribing any personal, like I was always going to be like, by the time Georgia state plays James Madison, we will know what commodity they are. And, you know, based on talking to the JMU sports blog guys and just how they were feeling in hindsight, I think they kind of had it pegged. Like they didn't feel too worried about the transition. They thought that they built up some scholarship levels with you know COVID and with some transfers. And I think that at times it's shown. And I think that next year will be better for them. Just getting another year, getting to recruit and getting to really hang at 85 scholarships. But you know, they've definitely come up and shown why they were a force at the FCS level for the last decade. Um, Centeo got hurt in that Marshall game. And so that's kind of explains that result. Um, and I think Southern exposed the past defense of JMU because the real strength of the team, which is not going to sound great to Georgia state fans ears is that that rush defense is not just good for the Sun Belt, nationally, one of the best rush defenses and yeah, it's, it's legit there. It's like 79 or something a game. It's insane. Yeah. And yeah, that's going to be a problem. They are second in the country in rush defense behind Michigan, who's also got a pretty good unit and getting ahead of ourselves. Marshall is number three in the nation, 82.4 rushing yards a game. And I guess that's where I'd started out with the Georgia state side of things is like, I don't know what offensive line we're getting because the injury is a little up in the air. We'll find out when they go out there. Um, it wasn't immediately known until kickoff, basically, that Georgia State was going to be without those two offensive linemen this week. And that's going to be a factor because Louisville has a good run game. They were able to get yards on this JMU defense on the ground. Marshall also were able to as well that game. I don't know how much of a factor ultimately Centeo getting hurt was probably a good bit. And even as far as letting Marshall kind of get into a rhythm on offense, that mattered if, you know, the JMU offense was not staying on the field. But those two teams probably have two of the better rushing offenses that JMU's faced. And they had some success. It wasn't what Georgia State did against Southern Miss. And that's not projectable. I don't think, I think it will be a slog to get to 200 yards, even if Georgia State has a good day. But I think that is doable like if you look at the numbers if you peek underneath the curtain I'll, the teams that they held to really low numbers a lot of them aren't just particularly good rushing teams and one of them they you know held fcs norfolk state to nine yards rushing like georgia state probably has a better rushing attack than norfolk state but it's gonna kind of be about the offensive line situation because if they're playing the way they did against ULM, probably they're not going to have that good of a game. And that's going to dictate a lot of how this game goes offensively for Georgia State. If Cristobal or Glover are back, or both of them are back, and it's back to the offensive line that played against Southern Miss and played against ODU and really got a rhythm over the month of October, then I do think that Georgia State can find some answers on the ground because you know we never count them out of those type of games, even going up against good rushing defense, because more often than not, they found a way to at least be effective in those situations. But for me, it's really about 
you know, when they line up on the first drive, who's out there? Because as much as we wouldn't want it to make a difference, as much as I don't think it needs to be an excuse for why there's a drop-off, it clearly was in the last game. And so if you're going to this game still a man or two down going up against this defense, this defense against the run is a lot better than ULM. And ULM ate your lunch for a lot of that game. Yeah, and it's it's going to be weird. It's just, it's going to be weird. I, you know, there was something you said last week about Georgia State trying to rewrite the ship um, when it comes to playing teams for the first time in the Sun Belt. Um, and I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful that Georgia State comes away with the win here. You know, there's there's certainly avenues for them to come away with the win. Uh, if you had asked me about this game like literally two months ago today, I would have probably said, oh, James Madison's going to blow Georgia State out by like 30. Um, but I mean, you know, one of those ways that I'm just mentioning that Georgia State can hang is JMU is not the best in, when it comes to turnovers. They're not the best at keeping the ball. And I mean, Georgia State is they're pretty decent at gaining turnovers. You know, they're tied for second in the Sun Belt with 21 turnovers gained. So get turnovers is what I'm trying to say here. And I I know that, you know, I I always mentioned the coach speak aspect of it, but I think that was something that Georgia State didn't really do against ULM. I mean, they lost the turnover battle, like just straight up. Like, yes, obviously the interception was a touch. It was an, it was a pick six, but even if it wasn't a pick six, they lost the turnover batter turnover battle. If Georgia state got another turnover, that's a possession that ULM didn't have. And I mean, we, we complimented the defense for sure, but they only got one turnover in the game, get a second turnover, get three turnovers. You know, obviously James Madison has a better offense than Louisiana Monroe, but in order to slow down an offense that wants to rush the ball like James Madison does, in order to slow down an offense that's going to be throwing a lot, you've got to pounce on the mistakes, force the mistakes and pounce on them. And, you know, the other part of this is you're backed up against a wall again, and it feels like at every high point this season or thought that it might be a turnaround point, you know, high points or the Charlotte game where you thought it might be the return of good days. Georgia State's let themselves down. And it's happened in similar ways throughout the year in ways that they've not been able to consistently clean up and it's bit them in some of these games. But the other side of that, I guess you could say is they're back to being kind of counted out and there's a lot of odds against them to win either of these games, let alone both of them on the road. And maybe that's the best place this team can operate in right now. And maybe they can get back to it because the James Madison's come up and shown they can be very, very good at the in the G5 level immediately and, you know, are probably going to go, okay, in year two, when we're eligible to win everything, we're gonna. And so this is a situation where mentality wise, if they're still feeling bad about the ULM loss, or if they're going on the road, feeling like this getting to six wins is just not all that attainable and not feeling like they can reset everything. It's a JMU team that's well capable of making this a long day for Georgia state. So I think mentality is going to play a part and just, where they're at after the loss, because it really feels backbreaking, but we've seen this team dig out of already bigger holes in the win loss column already. And, you know, it's still in front of them to get to six wins. And that isn't, it's still going to be a conversation at the end of the year because it will still have been a team that has lost two really winnable games at home that 
they absolutely can't lost can't have lost in Charlotte and ULM that's put them in this situation. But it's still in front of them. Like it is still until there's seven in the loss column for a team. You've still got that bowl game that is at least something you can hang your hat on. How much of it is going to continue to give them that inspiration? We'll, we'll find out because this will be an easy game to see early, like where the team is at. And if they're not in the right space, if it's not going the right way early and you see a little bit of give, it's going to be a problem. And James Madison more than happy to take advantage of that. It would be just like this Georgia State team specifically to win these last two on the road. Like, come on. Yeah, like, I mean, that's I can the thing is I, I can see it. I don't expect it just because it hasn't been a consistent enough team. But like, you're right that like that is how this season has gone is that you've seen the bursts of it being a team that's able to play well and beat teams and do it, whether it's running the ball or the defense, the last three games stepping up and playing better. Like you've seen what we saw all over the backstretch of 2021, where they were playing as good as they have in years, just as a team. And then you've seen the other stuff this year. So it's hard to bank on it, but they're certainly able to win these games. And it certainly would fit the mold of this just inconsistent back and forth season. If they were able to, it's just going to have to start here. At this point, you just can, you know, if you win this one, you give yourself the opportunity to go out there next week and win again and get to that six win mark. If you lose this one, it's a situation where you're staring at a, a last game with just nothing to play for for the first time in since 2018. You know, Georgia State hasn't played in any irrelevant game since 2018, the last time they had a losing season. And you know, I think it's been a point of pride for the team and, you know, people around the program that they've just been playing into December, getting to bowl games, and they haven't ha- had to face a game like that where, you know, you're already four and seven heading into the last week and you don't have anything to play for. It just it speaks to the disappointment of where this team has gotten to, but it also, you know, that is where the team has been recently. And so... You know, I guess we're going to see what they're made of this Saturday. All right, let's go ahead and move on to basketball. Uh, Panthers went one and one on the week, first with a 59 to 57 loss to Georgia Tech on Saturday and then an 85 83 overtime win over Mercer on Tuesday. It was a tale of two different late game comebacks against the Yellow Jackets in front of a crowd of over 4000. The Panthers fought back from an eight point deficit in the final two minutes and 50 seconds to tie the game. But Miles Kelly got a go-ahead runner to fall for Tech with 4.1 seconds to go, and State just could not get a shot off at the other end. Against Mercer on Tuesday, it was another 8-point comeback for the Thurs, and this time they forced overtime when Juwan Odom tied the game at 77 with a layup with 1.7 seconds remaining. And in OT, it remained the Odom show as he finished with a career-high 21 points and iced the game with four clutch free throws in the final 10 seconds of the period. So, gentlemen, thoughts on this two-game homestand? I mean, first of all, we just need to talk about just the game environment for the Georgia Tech game. Like, that is exactly what was envisioned when we were going to get a convocation center. Um, It was not even sold out, and hopefully there's a point where the stadium gets sold out at some point. But with 4,000-plus, such an atmosphere, uh, the students showed out, the band showed out, and Jonas Hayes made a point of going over before the game. I noticed and talking to them and made a point of 
going over after the game, even after the loss and thanking them. And you can tell that he gets that that can be such an important thing. And it, it was, and it was a lot driven by those guys showing out. And also the season ticket holders came single game t- ticket holders came. And I mean, it was just a great environment to be in a great basketball game to be at. It looked fun. And I, and I said off, you know, in a, in a group chat, I said, I just want the Georgia tech game to be interesting. And th- if, if I could just copy paste that environment, every game at the convocation center, because you're right. It doesn't need to be a sellout. And I would, I, I will say on, on the broadcast, I was curious to see how the environment would be because I don't I don't think there were many people in the upper level, which, you know, totally fine. I, I get it. At least I understand, but it late in the game, you know, even in the beginning, in the middle of the game, when Georgia state was kind of ahead and kind of, you know, roughing up tech a little bit, it, it was a really fun atmosphere. It seemed like a very fun environment. And, you know, I have very distinct memories of a few plays in the times that I went to the sports arena of Georgia state basketball players kind of feeding off the crowd and stuff like that. But it, it it didn't feel as natural and organic as it did watching it on, uh, you know, on Saturday. And, you know, I don't know if that's just these specific players are different than the players that, you know, I'm thinking of in my head, but it just looked really cool, man. It looked really good. Just all of it seemed like it worked really well together. And as far as the game itself, like I didn't really know what to think going in. The only real thought I had was I didn't think that Georgia State was getting played off the court by Georgia Tech. I thought it would be a game down the stretch at the very least. And that's ended up, that's what it ended up being. And Georgia Tech did a lot defensively to take Georgia State out of what they were wanting to do. Georgia State's going to kind of be defense first and the offense is going to have to find its feet a little bit better, especially from beyond the arc. But I think a lot of it on Saturday was more about what Georgia Tech was doing. And the state did a good job of kind of taking away their zone. It got to the point where they like going with zone as one of their base defenses. And Georgia State had answers to it. They prepped it really well to where Passner abandoned it, basically, and just went to the man the rest of the way. Uh, but Georgia Tech is still very, very stingy in that man. They were able to make it ugly. And I think Georgia State was okay being ugly. I think they were okay playing that style and stuck with it didn't get down when Georgia State got an 8 point when Georgia Tech got an 8 point lead late and kind of found their first real offensive burst went on that crazy comeback to tie the game in the final minute and you got beat on a you know Miles Kelly gets in the lane gets a little bit of space and puts up a little floater and i think the one regret is that you couldn't get a shot off at the other end to maybe win the game is because it was a drawn up three for Brendan Tucker. Um, But I still think you can be proud about the effort. And I think it showed that a lot of the defensive tendencies from the first couple of games against not ACC teams, definitely going to carry over the rest of the way. Like this is a team that's playing aggressive. And when they're firing at all cylinders, they're just going to be a really annoying team to face every night defensively, especially if you're a team making a trip across to Atlanta, you played in like, Jonesboro the Thursday before like getting ready for that in two days doesn't seem a lot of fun at all no it really doesn't and I like what you said about the team firing on all cylinders because I think after the Georgia Tech game 
it, it kind of gave me some pause and I wanted to see what that looks like. You know, I think outside of, I, I would say Jaheim Hudson looks the best on the court right now. You know, he is the only Panther who got significant minutes last year. You know, he's coming off of the bench, but like, it doesn't matter. He scored 23 against tech. You know, obviously we'll talk about the Mercer game as well a little bit later, but he, you know, he added, he just adds a level of comfortability right now that I think nobody else on the Panthers has established yet. And I was curious because um, in the first game of the year against coastal Georgia, I really liked what I saw out of Odom. You know, he was aggressive going at the rim. You know, he, he seems like he's going to be that really fun quintessential scrappy Georgia state point guard. You know, he's not going to shoot from the outside a lot or I mean, even well, he only shot one, three in that first game, but I, I liked what I saw. He just, the shots weren't falling. And, you know, I was curious to see if that was just, you know, is he kind of working his way back or is this going to be a guy who is just not really great at finishing? And the tech game kind of left me with more of those questions. But I mean, I liked that he was still attacking because the offense really did kind of run through him. Um, and, you know, there were some plays that they ran where they got him out. He, they didn't have him bring the ball up, but they were still involving him and allowing him to kind of facilitate from a corner spot, essentially. Um, but his shot specifically wasn't falling. Um, but yeah, no, it, the rest of the weekend, I will say, and specifically in that second half, you could really see the shot starting to fall for everybody on Georgia State. You could really see, you know, okay, this is a team that will have some growing pains, but they're going to score. They're not going to be a team that's going to end up winning games, you know, 52 to like 49 or something like that. Like they will be able to put the ball in the basket. Um, and, I, you know, I don't know. I could ask you, Brady, what did you think of the free throw percentages? Because obviously the 61 isn't great, but it was good against Coastal Georgia and it was good against Mercer. So it really felt like the tech game was just kind of an anomaly. The three Evan Johnson missed in quick succession after getting fouled on a three was pretty brutal in the game script. Um, and certainly a moment you'd sing a lot after the fact. And that shades a lot of it because that was three misses of 21. And so if you take those out, they're 13 of 18 in the other other free throws that night, which is a little bit closer to what they were able to get against Mercer. Um, I don't know that it's a worry for me because I think Odom and Tucker, like when you see them take free throws, they've got good form on them. Like it was not an accident that Odom was automatic down the stretch in the Mercer game. Like that was looking like he's done a thousand times in the gym every week, you know, that type of just mechanical, this is what we do every time. And just the motion looked good. And I put Jaheim in the same category as well. Uh, he hasn't taken that many. So the few misses that he's had is skewed his numbers, but he's got a good form on his free throws as well. And so I think it's going to be a team that can make their free throws. And I, I think it's going to team that going to be a team that needs to, because it's so guard dominant. You've got guys like Odom and Jaheim. They're going to draw contact and get to the line. And so it's kind of like what we've talked about with Kane Williams the last couple of years where he is so good at getting to the line and those stretches where he was just not making free throws at the click he needed to. It was such a problem because it is his game. And if he is getting to the line and missing them, or in this case, if they're getting the line and missing them, then it defeats the purpose. And it's counterintuitive because it's taking away from, you know, maybe you don't draw up a play where he's going to go to the rim and get fouled because he might not make them. Whereas 
especially as he got in the Mercer game and down the stretch in the Mercer game, it was basically the offense was give the ball to Dewan and let him get down and get ahead of steam. And that was working. And I think we'll see a fair bit of that. I think that, you know, one of the first things that Jonas said when he got the job, as far as like what he wanted to run was he wanted to give the players freedom just to make plays. And so I won't be surprised if we continue to see late game situations where it's basically just like the the Dewan Odom show and he's controlling the ball. But in saying that, I think he felt good on the night against Mercer. And I think that he started calling his number a lot, but we've also seen him get some good looks for his teammates when he does penetrate, because when he goes down the lane and he gets a step on his guy, you can see what it does to the other defense. They move towards him. They know that he, they can't let him get to the rim. And some of those times he's dished out and gotten to an open guy in the perimeter. And okay. Sometimes those shots aren't falling, but I think more often than they have, they will. And I still think it's going to be a concern for the team with the perimeter shooting, but they're at 18% on the year when you look at Kempom, which I think takes out the Coastal Georgia game. I think a bad year using the ball from three is going to be in like the touching the 30s, maybe a little bit below. So, okay, even if you want to say it's going to be a team that's going to struggle, it's not going to be like 40% like some of those last Ron Hunter teams were. I think that they're still going to be at a higher floor than they have been. The shots just have really not been falling in the early going. I think the problem, too, with the three ball is, I mean, who's the best three-point shooter on the team? It's Evan Johnson, and I don't think that's that's particularly close. Well, Tucker was 38% at Charleston the last two seasons from three. He was. You know, he, I, I think he's a capable three-point shooter as well, but... Like Evan Johnson right now is not necessarily shooting the best from three. You know, he's under 30% and I don't think he's going to be under 30% for the entire year. Like he is definitely a guy that they expect to be, you know, knocking down some threes and, you know, he's, he's taken a lot more this year than he did last year. That is dang for sure. But he's going to probably start making his fair share of them. And I think the problem with the team three point percentage is he's the best shooter and he's the only one who's really shooting a ton right now in terms of that specific shot. So because he is struggling, the numbers, they're kind of being bogged down a little bit by his poor shooting. Um, So I do, I do expect them to get better. I don't expect Georgia state to stay where they are as it relates to three point shooting. Um, you know, I th- I the only other person, like Evan has 21 attempts right now. The only other person with 10 or more is Jermaine Mann, and he's hit two of them. So, And that's the other thing is that Tucker got hurt very early in the Georgia Tech game. He came back in the second half, but he didn't take a three in that game. And he only took one in the Mercer game. And he's a guy, like, he's 38% at Charleston the last two years. He has shown that he can make threes and just hasn't really taken them. He never really got any kind of rhythm in the Tech game because of that injury. And so he's still someone I'm looking at as as the games go on, taking more of them. But the other part of it is that a little bit, I think they've been forcing a couple of threes and that's been factor as well. So definitely to be sure, got to make sure they're good looks as well. And there were maybe a few times in both of those games where maybe a little bit trigger happy and, you know, every three is good if it goes in, but when there's ones that you're throwing up in like the first five, 10 seconds of the shot clock and they don't go in, you really look back at it and go, that was just a waste of possession. And there are a few of those, but not bombing them, not going super crazy, but still got to get that a little bit under control because 
you know, when they get into the offense and when they, whether that's letting Dewan get downhill or whether that was running some sets, I mean, they've gotten some really good looks. And I actually thought the offense against Mercer was better, especially in the first half. And defensively, maybe a little bit less good, but Mercer's also a better offensive team. And you kind of knew that going in that you were going to get the test from Georgia Tech defensively. And then offensively is what Mercer was going to challenge you with. And that was the case. But I think you got a little bit more, especially in the first half um, and down the stretch of the offense we expect to see and hope to see with maybe just a little bit more improved three-point shooting as the games go on. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I can't even fault Georgia State for that first half defensive performance against Mercer. The first step from Mercer's guards were insane. Like if if you weren't directly in front and like trying to either take a charge or just trying to suck it into a double team or something, they were going to get by you. Like, and I mean, I don't think anybody on Georgia State is specifically slow. Like Dwan Odom is not slow. And even he was getting just blown by guys. So, yeah, I mean, that one was definitely more about Mercer to me, you know, and I also think credit Mercer because they ran some really good sets to get those open threes that they got, you know. In the second half, they only hit one three, but in the first half, they were four for nine. And a lot of that was just really good action between the guards and the forwards. They just, everybody was kind of getting open and, you know, finding a shot that they wanted to take and either taking it or passing it up for an even better shot. So, and and it did tighten up in the second half, like you mentioned. Yeah, I mean, Coach Lanier always talked about before and after these games with the Mercer the last couple of years that he really liked facing them because of what they ran. And Jonas compared the uh, length of uh, the amount of plays they have in their playbook to the Dead Sea Scrolls after this game. And I enjoyed that little quip that he had after the game. But um, both coaches now like saying what we know is the obvious is that there is some good sets that Mercer was able to run. And like you say, credit to the other team for being able to execute some offense. but. In the second half, it looked a little bit like the Tech game where the first real time in the second half that Mercer got something going, they took the lead, and it was an eight-point lead again. And that's when Georgia State did the exact same thing they did against Tech, only they finished the drill this time. You know, maybe helped in this situation that they were the one with the ball last, down two, and Dewan got the, the play to send it to overtime. And then in overtime, after what had been pretty free-flowing through a lot of the game, Really defensive overtime where not that many points were scored. Um, Dewan Odom getting most of the action in overtime. Like I said, it was kind of, he was the offense down the stretch and it was working. Uh, the thing to follow for me offensively, Jaheim, the book is out on him and people are aware that he is quite good. And down low, he is just, if you're going to give him time and space and give him one-on-one matchup, he's going to take care of business. And so Mercer auto-doubled him most of the second half. And it was intermittent results. There was one sequence where on one play, he got doubled and ended up traveling because he was trying to fight his way out of it. And the next time down the floor, when he got doubled, he found a way out of it to wide open Jermaine Mann for a layup. And that's going to be a thing because if he's out there on the court and you're seeing a lot of teams throwing double teams his way, that inherently is going to give Georgia State a very favorable open guy Jaheim's just going to have to be able to manage those situations and get the, the ball to him because, you know, you, can, you don't get many easier layups than what Mann got in that situation. 
but that's the easiest way to get some really easy live ball turnovers also is if you're not able to fight your way out of double teams. And yeah, I don't think that's going to stop anytime soon. I think when you do what you did against Georgia Tech, where you know the guy on Georgia State was the best player on the court for a long stretch there in the early second half, teams are going to know that they can't leave you alone anymore. And so that's going to be something to watch going forward. Could, should be a benefit to Georgia State just across the board on offense if they're able to take advantage of it. But, you know, they've got to go out there and make those plays happen when they when those doubles do come. Yeah, and I mean, it's funny that you say that because specifically in the second half, that was kind of when Dwan Odom took over. So if you're doubling Jaheim, it's not really... If, if Odom is scoring and if Odom is kind of controlling the game like how he did, it's not really going to help you. So, I mean, if... Jaheim and Odom are the only two who are bringing consistent offense. It's a really good tandem to have if you're Georgia State. And the other thing I wanted to note about the game against Mercer, I put an article out on 24-7 Sports kind of with the quick hits, and I won't touch on the stuff I put in there. I ask you to read the article. Um, the other things that I didn't include in that that stood out to me is that Georgia State actually faced some pretty real foul trouble in the first half of the game against Mercer. Dewan Odom, Jaheim Hudson, Edward Namoko with a couple of moving screens that <laughs> moving screens are maybe the, the number one thing that you get better at when you're no longer a freshman big, but he's still working through that. Um, and Jermaine Mann all had two fouls. And so you had to go deeper into your rotation. And I thought you got a really good first half from Kalik Brooks and Joe Jones, the third, both of them gave you great minutes and stem that tide to where I think after the second foul, I don't think any of them except maybe Dewan Odom, got back on the court in the first half and you were able to manage that end with a lead. I thought it was a really nice job by Jonas of managing that foul trouble and not letting it really be a factor. And it's because those guys went out there and made plays. Those are big minutes, you know, like the, it's early season. I, I, w- I feel like I could make comments on the starters and the bench. And, you know, I know how this works. I know that coaches' rotations get so much tighter as the season goes on. So I'm not going to do that. But it's always nice when you can see guys like that who you think are at the edge of the bench giving you those good competitive minutes, you know, in a pinch. Like that's something, you know, we saw something like that with Caleb Scott in the NCAA tournament game. Obviously, it's Gonzaga. Obviously, it didn't last super long but he gave Georgia state anything like that is a kid who can play basketball. And the more information you have now when these games are less important, if you will, the better, you know, you can be throughout the season. So one more news item to discuss this week for basketball, and that is the Capital Classic, which is a four-team tournament in the Georgia State Convocation Center. The Panthers play host to this MTE, which will see them play three games in three days. Their opponents will be Eastern Kentucky at 6 p.m. on Friday, Texas A&M Commerce at 3 p.m. on Saturday afternoon, and UNC Asheville at 3.30 p.m. on Sunday. All GSU games will be broadcast on ESPN+. So gentlemen, thoughts on this multi-team event? Yeah, I mean, it's a nice simulation of the turn the, the conference tournament later in the year. It's a real opportunity to get the test your legs in that way that you don't get through much of the season. Um, the benefit of Georgia State is they're hosting it, so they're not having to travel somewhere and do this. Although, you know, that's the the weighing the pros and the cons. I think for this team and given they're playing in a new arena and there's a lot of new faces, I think it is a positive that they're getting this at home and it's not an additional factor they have to worry about. Uh, it's three games you look at, and 
you know, UNC Asheville is considerably the best rated when you look at Kempop.com. They are 172 per his ratings. Georgia State's at 224 after these games against Georgia Tech and Mercer. Eastern Kentucky at 257 and Texas A&M Commerce, who's transitioning from D2 at 296. And so it's games you look at is all of them are winnable. All of them certainly losable if you don't play well. And so I think it's a good opportunity facing three different styles in three days, getting up and down, putting up all those shots and having getting ready for the next game the next day. Good early season test for this team. And yeah, I mean, I think you'd like to take all three. I think all three is certainly attainable and it would be a nice feather in your cap and you could sit there at five and one heading into a tough Belmont game. But just more than anything, just interested to see continual growth because I think we've seen the team get better as the season has gone on already. And this is going to be a lot of minutes in a short amount of time to see how they go over the weekend. Yeah, I agree. And I, I'm, I'm going to say something that I feel is a little silly. But I think it's a it's a point worth mentioning. I think this tournament can tell us more about the ceiling for Georgia State this year than either of the two teams that they just played. And now that sounds a little crazy because, like you said, they're winnable games, but they could also lose them if they don't play well. Um, but they you also mentioned that they've gotten better as the season has gone on. You know, they've played three games and there has not been a stretch where I felt like Georgia State is not in this game. They need a huge comeback to be back in this game. You know, yes, all of the three games are at home. Teams play better at home. Yes. You know, shiny new convocation center, new coaches, stuff like that. But there was a huge leap in performance between the Georgia Tech game and the Mercer game. I'm not expecting that same leap between Mercer and any of these three games, but if this is a game where Odom is still going off, then the three-point shooting comes, you know, Edward Namoko doesn't have those I'm a freshman and mistakes and stuff like that. That can tell you a lot about what, you know, you're going to see later on in the Sun Belt, later on in the non-conference schedule. I'm not saying that these three games, if they win each of them by 50, that means they're going to go walk into Auburn and blow them out or something like that. No, but if you can see the continued growth, if the three ball is falling and they're getting open looks, you know, if it's not just Jaheim who's when he's getting those minutes on the court is looking like an all sunbelt player. If there are other guys who are elevating their game even more and getting even more comfortable that that can show you a lot, especially against an opponent that, you know, would be deemed quote unquote inferior. I feel like a nice arbitrary thing is just out of this weekend, win or loss, whatever, at least one of the games being a good three point shooting game would be a nice little seeing that there is the ability of this team to put those shots in the basket would, would be a nice thing to get from this weekend. Um, In a very small sample size, Eastern Kentucky has given up 41% on threes. Maybe they're your mark as far as that goes. Um, But just, I think offense more than defense. I think we've seen what the defense can do against Georgia tech, who is some of the more talented roster that Georgia state will face all season. You were able to kind of muddy it up with them and make them grind out just to 59 points uh, through 40 minutes. I think seeing more steps on the offensive side this weekend would be a nice thing. And that goes hand hand in hand with the three points that I just mentioned. But I, I just think that's the side of the ball that it feels like there's more room to grow. And, you know, if you're not trying to win, the, win those rock fights every time you go out there on the court, 
that's where you're going to have to see those improvements come. All right. And of course, as always, before we get you out of here, we do have some sports bits to discuss. Not too much this week. And we've covered most of it already. But just to reiterate, we have a lot of basketball happening. Uh, both men and the women are playing this week. Men, of course, playing on Friday at 6, Saturday at 3, and Sunday at 3.30 p.m. Football, of course, playing at JMU on Saturday. And then the women play on Monday night when they host Winthrop in the Convocation Center. And then again on Wednesday when they head to Cleveland, Ohio for the Hampton Inn Cleveland Downtown Viking Invitational. That's a mouthful. But yeah, um, so got some good opportunities to catch the men's basketball team, women's basketball team and football this upcoming week. So make sure you get in there uh, if you can and get down to the Convocation Center to cheer on the Panthers in the multi-team event. And until next time, have a great week and go Panthers.